The premise of the long-running TV game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire?, is that if the person in the hot seat just answers a series of trivia questions, they can walk away with $1 million. Now, it's hard to do. Most competitors fail. But the allure is that $1 million feels like an impossibly large sum of money to most Americans, something they'll never themselves have unless they, well, you know, win a game show or win the lottery. But what if I told you you could very easily be a millionaire when you retire if we fixed our broken social security system? Sounds impossible, right? Well, that's the subject of today's episode of Building Tomorrow, a podcast where we talk about a future that can be freer, happier, and more prosperous than today if we choose to make it so. But before we indulge in that hopeful future, we need to deal with our messed up present. Most Americans struggle in retirement. The overwhelming majority of retirees live off fixed incomes that are a fraction of their incomes when they were working, and most of that comes from Social Security benefits. They are lucky to get a dollar back for every dollar they put into the system while working. And even that meager level of income is approaching a precipice, since Social Security is fast approaching the point when it will need to cut benefits in order to stay solvent. To discuss just how bad the current situation is, I've invited Michael Tanner, a senior scholar here at the Cato Institute, to join me. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, our audience skews younger, and I'm not sure that most 20-somethings spend all that much time contemplating Social Security beyond the kind of vague feeling of annoyance when they see the deduction from their paycheck. So in very basic terms, how is Social Security supposed to work? Well, Social Security is a transfer payment from people who are working to people who are retired. One of the important things to remember is that when you pay your Social Security taxes, none of that money is put away for your retirement. It's not invested in anything. It simply goes right out the door to pay for basically grandma. Uh, essentially, you're paying for their retirement. And then the hope is that when you get to be retirement age, the next generation of grandkids along there will come in and pay for your uh, Social Security taxes. In many ways, it does work a lot like a pyramid scheme, uh, where as long as you have more and more people coming into the system and paying in, you can continue to pay benefits to the people at the top of the of the pyramid. Now, it's very different from how I think a lot of you know um, Americans think of it. They do tend to think of it as something of more of like a there's a literal account, you put money in, and then the government gives you back when you retire. But that's not the case. It's not only not the case, but the courts have said that you're not entitled to any benefits based on having paid in. Uh, the, the courts in two cases, Helvering versus Davis, which is, uh, I think, a 1937 uh, case, and then a case around 1960 uh, called Nestor versus Fleming. I mean, basically, the courts said, look, you pay your Social Security taxes. That's just a tax. It's just like any other tax that you pay, income taxes or whatever. Uh, and Social Security benefits are a government payment like farm price supports or something, and they're not actually linked. You don't get a certain level of benefits based on how much you paid in. You get it based on some formula that Congress has created, and Congress is free to change that formula or reduce your benefits, take benefits away at, at any time they, they choose to do so. Yeah, I suppose the only thing keeping them from doing that is, well, I, if they t tinkered too much, there'd be a bit of a political uprising, right? Well, but they have done it in the past. Uh -huh. uh, in fact, uh, when I started working, they told me that I could retire at age 65 and collect my full Social Security benefits. And then uh, we had the Greenspan Commission came along in 1982, and they said, oops, you know, too bad. We kind of lied to you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, now you've got to work to age 67 before you get benefits. And already, we're, you know, we continue to hear rumblings that while they want to raise the retirement age or change the COLA formulas or just somehow tinker with benefits uh, that are going to make them less. 
And and we have to. I mean, quite simply put, you cannot pay the level of promised benefits to young people with the level of taxes that are being paid today. Mm. Now, whenever uh, Social Security pops up in the in the press, it usually has to do with uh, the Social Security trust fund and when that's supposed to run out of money. What what is this trust fund? What what's the cons- What's the concern about it in particular running out of money? Yeah, a lot of people misunderstand what the trust fund is. The trust fund is not an actual asset. It is more an accounting measure of how much the federal government owes the Social Security system. Yeah. I mean, consider that between about 1990 and about 2010 or so, yeah. give or take, uh, Social Security ran a slight surplus. Uh, for most of Social Security's history, it didn't. It's simply money came in, money went out to pay benefits. That's that's the way it worked. But for a few years, Social Security built up to a, a surplus. That is, it brought in more money in taxes than it was spending on benefits. Now, that money has to go somewhere. The government can't put, you know, put it in a cigar box and bury it out behind the Treasury building. They have to do something with it. And what they do is they tend to buy a government bond. And this is a special issue bond. It's not tradable. You can't go out and buy it yourself. But the government can buy it. And once they buy this bond, the money used to buy it is general revenue of the federal government. It's just like when you buy a savings bond. After you bought it, the money you used to pay for it goes into the general coffers of the federal government. And it's spent on whatever the federal government spends money on, whether that's uh, building roads and bridges or invading Middle Eastern nations. You know, That's where it goes. Uh, and what remains behind is this bond, um, which actually sits in a vault in West Virginia. Uh, <laughs> Literally. So, oh, wow. so right next to the Confederate <laughs> war bonds. I mean, it's, uh, it's out there. But, uh, but you know, when the government then has to pay back Social Security benefits, uh, this year, for example, they ran about a $65 billion shortfall. They go out to the, this vault. They take out $65 billion of bonds and they go back to the federal government. They say, pay us. Well, where's the government going to get that money? I mean, it's it's going to have to, uh, you know, borrow it or raise taxes or find it someplace else. But it's not actual money that the federal government has sitting around. Uh, so we have this. It's funny how the Social Security Administration will use language like a trust fund. It's language that you think you're familiar with what that is. Right. But it's right. it's not. They, they, yeah. Yeah. It's an asset for the Social Security system and a liability for the federal government. It's, it's much like <laughs> if you took an IOU and put moved it from one pocket to the other, you're not any richer. Right. 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 You, you just label your pockets differently. One pocket's SSA, one pocket's federal government. But it's all, all <laughs> it's money all in, money out. When is that supposed to, to run out? Like, right. We're tapping it now yeah. and it will eventually be completely exhausted around 2035, according to the, the last trustees report that I saw. So we've got, you know, this, that's not having this trust fund shouldn't be much uh, comfort to uh, to young people. If you're, uh, you know, if you're 30 years old right now, uh, well, the trust fund's not going to help you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I never, I, I remember back, this is before the financial crisis, which accelerated the timeline, if you will. Um, the first time I ever looked up anything regards to Social Security, I saw that the estimate at the time was at some point in like the late 2040s or something that it was supposed to run out again before the, the financial crisis. It was, but I remember it, it was notable because it was the year I would have hit retirement age. So I, I mean, this was never, you know, we've advanced the timeline, but it's never been of any real relief to millennials. And once the trust fund runs out, by law, Social Security must cut benefits back to what's coming in through taxes at that point. Okay. And it's about a 25% reduction that would have to take place. 
So, I mean, this, this, I mean, for people who are on a fixed income, losing a quarter of their expected income is, is devastating. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if consider the poorest 20% of Americans depend on social, in retirement depend on Social Security for about 80% of their retirement income. So uh, we're, we're facing a – we're staring at a crisis. It's in slow motion right now, but everyone can see this coming. I, I know there were attempts to fix this like 20 years ago, late 90s, early aughts. I think both the Clinton administration made noises in that direction, especially the George W. Bush administration was interested in privatization at some point. Why didn't that happen? Some sort of reform to put this on a better – uh, uh, secure financial footing. Sure. Basically, it, it's something that was very difficult to do politically, ran into political headwinds that had nothing to do with Social Security and made it even worse. Okay. Uh, Bill Clinton uh, had a, a very big interest in reforming Social Security. He had the Save Social Security first tour, went all around the country, including a number of Cato people he had uh, speak, uh, Jose Pinera uh, and others uh, from Cato spoke at, a, at Clinton events. He actually had at one point a secret uh, task force at the Treasury Department looking into how to make a partial privatization of Social Security work. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Monica Lewinsky happened. Oh, yeah. And suddenly he had to shore up votes in the Senate on his left flank. He had to keep Ted Kennedy and those folks happy. And uh, so he abandoned the program. Now, George W. Bush picked it up. Uh, he was prepared to run with it. He created a, a task force headed by Pat Moynihan to, to look into this. And their first report on this was due to come out in December of 2011. Hmm. <laughs> Something happened that fall, was it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Or, oh, I'm sorry. Two, was it 2001? 2001, 2001, yeah. 2001, so, not 2001. 9-11, you know, yeah. the terrorist attacks, and no one's and, talking and about it. And it all goes down the, the tubes. Yeah. Uh, second term, he picks it up again. He starts a tour around the country to do this. And you had the Iraq war collapsing. You had Hurricane Katrina and Bush's credibility was kind of shot and it, it all died. So how much harder will it be? I mean, imagine the earlier you catch this, the the easier the, – the, the, or not easy is the right word, but the less harsh the transition. The, it's easier to deal with the earlier you catch it. So how much harder is it going to be 20 years on now? Yeah, if you wait until you actually have hit that point at which Social Security has got to cut benefits by 25%. Uh, you've got. It's going to be tough, no matter what you do. You're going to either have to cut benefits by that much, or you're going to have to have a huge tax increase overnight. Uh, you can't sort of phase anything in. Uh, so that's that's part one. Part two is that debt that Social Security faces, which right now is about forty two trillion dollars uh, in unfunded liabilities, that gets worse by several hundred billion dollars every year. So the longer you wait, the more you're going to have to make up. Okay, so let's roll back a second to. So we're we're not yet we haven't yet advanced to the eschaton we're not at the end times yet uh, so things are kind of rolling along people are getting more or less a hundred percent of their expected benefit what is so let, let's put this in financial terms if I were to retire today and start collecting whatever my you know calculated benefit was what was the return on all of that money I gave to the federal government for my entire working career. Generally, it's an average around two and a half percent, a little bit less than that. Uh, you know, now that's like sort of positive, but uh, you know, if you stuck that money in a savings account, you do about as well. So it's not a big shakes, but you are still earning some sort of positive interest on it if you were to retire today. Now, someone who retired 10, 20 years ago, they made out. Uh, they got back everything they paid in with interest and a whole heck of a lot more besides. To go back to my 
pyramid scheme analogy, you know, the first investor always does really well yeah, <laughs> in a right. pyramid scheme. <laughs> it's the people at the bottom when the thing starts falling apart that lose their shirt. And of course, when we talk about, you know, average return, we don't mean, again, there's not a pool of money that's been invested in is accruing dividends and, and capital gains, et cetera. That just means you're getting more out than you put in. But someone else is paying for that, right? Well, that, that's right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's you know, the return on your investment is kind of a misnomer because there is no investment. Right, right. Uh, but if you just look at your taxes and what you're getting back, you're still getting back more than you paid in uh, if you retire today. Now, that young people can't necessarily look forward to that. Uh, yeah, there's some estimates that says they'll get about a 1% return, but the reality is for an awful lot of them, they will get a negative return. That is, they'll actually die before they get back what they paid in, let alone anything on top of that. So in which case you've – I mean, it's if at 0% return, effective return, it's like you made a 40 or 50-year loan to the federal government and you didn't even get back your principal. Yeah, they didn't – that's right. <laughs> uh, let alone they're paying interest on it. They, yeah, they just yeah. take your money and uh, make use of it. That's pretty bad. Um, now, I've heard one defense of keeping Social Security fundamentally as it currently is, um, is that even when the trust funds, you know, uh, runs out of money, benefits would only have to be slashed like 75 or 80 percent depending on, you know, on the estimate. But that that can be covered by – that shortfall can be covered by taxes. Um now, that's a very blithe answer. I will just cover it somehow with, with taxpayer money. How, how, how much money are we talking about here? So let's say we hit 2035. We're, we're having to cut benefits to 75%, there's, but there's political pressure to make for the government to make up the difference by raising taxes. How much are we talking there? Yeah, in that year alone, you'd be talking somewhere around six to $800 billion in that year alone. I say overall, the unfunded liabilities of Social Security, uh, in, to get to counting wonky, uh, discounted present value terms, are about $42, $43 trillion, <laughs> uh, which is real money, even, even yeah. by Washington uh, standards. Yeah. Uh, the, the pro what you'd have to do is roughly the equivalent. You could find different taxes to do it, but roughly the equivalent of a 50% increase in the payroll tax. Uh, so... You know, you need to have to hike the payroll tax from its current 12.5% for Social Security. It's 15 when you throw in Medicare. But you'd have to raise that to about oh, 18, 19%. Uh, or find the equivalent in other taxes. Right. And of course, that comes on with negative knock-on effects, like you tax people more, that's less income, less they're spending, less they're investing. It, it Functionally, it has it, it would be an economic drag. Sure. And, and let's remember, we've already raised Social Security taxes repeatedly over history. We're up about 800% in real terms uh, since Social Security was created. When Social Security started, it was a 1% tax on the employee, 1% on the employer, and it was capped at $60 maximum. Oh, wow. So we've gone from 2% effectively to 12.4%. Right. It's actually the highest tax that the average American family pays. About uh, 70 to 80 percent of Americans pay more in Social Security taxes than they do in federal income tax. Wow, really? So I, I guess some of that's disguised because by making half of it, half of it you see on your paycheck, half of it the employer pays. But in reality, that's foregone. Right. Almost anybody, almost all economists assume that the worker pays the full freight on that, even though it's, you know, you could say that they only pay 6.2 and the employer pays 6.2. They pay all 12.4. 
Michael paints a pretty dire picture of the present and future of Social Security, but those problems are not actually new. Some of them were foreseeable from the moment Social Security legislation was enacted in the 1930s. To talk about why, Peter Van Doren, the editor of Cato's Journal Regulation, joins me in the studio now. Thanks for coming to the show, Peter. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we've talked with Michael Tanner about uh, the, the uncertain future, if we can be very generous, the uncertain future of the Social Security system. But some of those flaws uh, that we're grappling with today and are going to worsen over the next couple of decades were kind of baked into the system from the start, which was the 1930s. So what were some of those design flaws, if you will? Well, I want to I want to uh, differ with that just a bit and, and try to differentiate of what what tax rates and benefit schedules were in the original 1935 Act, and then what amendments occurred between the years 1939 and 1950, which altered the structure. So, uh, right of center commentary now often argues that Social Security was flawed with, with in quotes, from the start. And there needs to be a bit of a corrective on that, which is the, and um, the original Social Security uh, law in 1935 had a tax, an increasing tax rate schedule from 1935 through 1950 put into law, which said, we're not going to have many beneficiaries to start, but as we increase the number, we're going to um, raise taxes gradually, and we want a surplus. We want to pre-fund this a bit so that the projections were in 1935 that by 1980, uh, they'd have a $45 billion reserve at the end of 1980, which just, again, that doesn't sound much at like At the time, it, it sounded like sounds, a whole lot of money. Right. Yeah. So the original law said the tax rate on earnings would be 2% in 1935, increasing to 3% in 1940, increasing to 5% in 1946, and increasing to 6% in 1949. And there were – Roosevelt wanted to build a reserve, in effect a government system in which uh, the – not truly pay-as-you-go either, some sort of kind of hybrid system. And Roosevelt did not want general revenues to be used. Again, the story you're telling, which is this sort of uh, fiscal contract, if you will, that Roosevelt had envisioned, which is kind of a partial um, pay-as-you-go system, but also kind of a partial pre-funded system, that that contract to, to... to f- f- find a political solution that kind of was down the middle of of the left versus right version notions of proper uh, dealing with retirement that in theory it would have been a little more sustainable with this where you would have oh, had very a much, pot of very money so. and you would have used the earnings and interest Correct. from that to fund a good chunk of social security payouts that's the original vision in 1935 but we don't do that right why what changed well, the 1939 amendments started us down the road very quickly to what we know uh, t- today, which is where uh, pay as you go and we don't have much go to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to pay. For. Lots of paying, not much right. going. Right. Yes. <laughs> right. So the uh, Senator Arthur Vandenberg, Republican of Michigan, opposed the reserve and um, 
on the Democratic side, there was strong pressure from the left to have more benefits, survivor benefits and dependent and survivor benefits, which were not part of the original 35 Act. So the original 35 Act was just retirement. It, For people who worked and contributed themselves. And who then period. retired, but not mm-hmm. uh, survivor benefits. If a worker dies early, that was not part of the giving children benefits was not part of the original 35 Act. And survivor benefits for a spouse who did not work, but um, where uh, the main earner worked, that was not part of the original 35 Act. So in 1939, you had a classic bargain mm. in which the left got more benefits. They got survivor benefits and... and, and um, Spousal benefits. and Added and... The tax rate, business interests, and those fearful of a government reserve, which would then be used for other things, uh, they got a tax freeze. Mm. So all the scheduled tax rate increases from 1940, the first one was to go from 2 to 3 in 1940. Well, the 39 amendments froze that. And then through 1949, eight consecutive bills froze the tax rates at 2%. Mm. And we added beneficiaries. So right from 39 <laughs> through 50, yeah. we went, we were already well down the road of not a hybrid system that was halfway between pay-as-you-go and, uh, and, res- and total reserved system to a system in which <laughs> we were just dishing out stuff and not taxing. I mean, just like now, we right. all we can agree on is spending on stuff and not having taxes. And that just seems to be uh, an American equilibrium that that uh, has been around. I think much. Our, I think our listeners will be surprised that Roosevelt had a little more fiscal rectitude right. than he's often portrayed by our side. On the right, he's supposed to be this, you know, tax and spend bad guy who, yeah. In fact, he 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 was um, he had his priorities and he wanted redistribution, but um, he there was more fiscal rectitude in him than uh, is he's often given credit for. So by the time people start getting payments, it's it's pay as you go. I mean, it's giving checks to folks who hadn't contributed to the contributed to the. Well, to the ironically, slow, uh, World War II because of full employment. Generated enormous, so the surpluses actually grew during World War II, despite the tax freeze. Had the tax rates that had been in in the original Thirty Five Act been in place in World War II, and employment had been the same and wages had been the same, and everyone paid in at those tax rate, the surplus would have been much greater than had been anticipated. Not forty seven billion dollars; it would have been gigantic, and. Um, we would be in much better shape now uh, than we uh, than we are. I mean, I suppose they were confronting um, they were confronting a really tough problem, which is that they both want a sustainable Social Security retirement system for you know that workers today contribute to and then pull money off when they retire. But they also have a a problem. It's 1935. We're in the middle of the Great Depression. And you have a whole generation of retirees who are whose wealth has been wiped out and are now retired and in dire poverty. So those are two things which aren't. Those are two separate kind of distinct issues. Correct. We could have had. We didn't need. I mean, you didn't need a perpetual Social Security system to solve the one-time wealth loss problem. We could have just transferred taxed and transferred a bunch of wealth to those retirees in the middle of the Great Depression. And we could have we could have 
uh, borrowed to do so. Bill Niskanen, the, the, the late chairman of the Cato Institute, always said the government borrowing should be reserved for uh, public goods issues and, and shocks that occur to a nation where the where the costs of those shocks should be borne across generations rather than within. And thus, one could say he always thought borrowing for World War II was rational and, and that successive generations ought to pay for that, the, the benefits of that public sector effort. And similarly, even though we now know that misguided Federal Reserve policy was a main and an important contributor to uh, the the Depression, right? We were in a deflationary era that wasn't understood at the time and that generated unemployment and things like that. The, um, the, so even though government policy was responsible for in part what happened, the, the redistribution to that generation that suffered wealth losses because of the, the, the stock market crash and things like that, um, we could have in effect made them whole and not then created a system that that went on and on and on. But that, and in fact, because we did not do that, yeah. you and I've talked off mic about how <clears throat> one generation got more than they put in into that system, and then subsequently, somewhere, sometime, somebody has to save both for their own retirement and redistribute backwards to that for that one-time wealth gain that that occurred, which has not yet been really paid for. It's been kind of like a <clears throat> generational hot potato. Someone has to pay for that Everyone's wealth transfer. Everyone's been passing it down. <laughs> yeah, it's, and I'm doing it to you. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. I really appreciate that. But yeah, I mean, in a sense, you know, boomers are, I mean, it wasn't boomers who were responsible, though, to be clear. No. It was the the silent generation or the grayish generation, what do you want to yes. call them? Um, they were the initial ones who, I mean, they would have had to foot the bill if they had paid for upfront. And they were paying for their parents' retirement, essentially. In the my 1930s. grandfather benefited and my father needed to pay for it. And so far, nobody. Yeah. And then you and you're like, oh, the boomer's like, no, we're not paying for this. you know. And plus, there's lots of us retiring. So sorry, millennials and Gen Xers and whatever. Yeah. But all hope is not lost, as bad as it looks right now. I also asked Michael Tanner about how we can fix Social Security to make it not only more sustainable, but just better, period. So, okay, so we've got this big growing problem. It's not going away anytime soon, and um, we're heading towards the cliff. H- how would you right now, like, what's the best way to fix this mess? What's your preferred reform Well, package? this one is not... Rocket science. I mean, this is fairly basic choices you've got to make. You have more money going out than you have coming in. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, if you go to your bank account, you realize you have more. You're spending more than you're taking in in wages. You, you realize you got a problem. So you've got three options basically. Number one is you can reduce the amount going out. Uh, we can cut Social Security benefits, and there's a lot of people talking on the table about how to do that. We can raise the retirement age yeah. again. We can change cola formulas. There's something called wage price indexing, which is way too complicated for this discussion, but it's something that I actually like. Uh, there's things you can do to reduce the, the payouts. Or you can bring in more money. We just talked about you could raise that payroll tax by 50 percent. You can do bring in more, more money in that. The third option is to make better use of the money that you actually have in the system. After it comes in, instead of simply sending it out for, for payments, you could actually invest it in something that earns a rate of return, the stocks, bonds, annuities, and so on. Uh, and that's what we talk about when we talk about individual accounts, the idea that 
younger workers should be able to take a portion of what they're paying in in Social Security taxes and actually invest that in something real and that that would form part of the basis for their retirement rather than waiting for the next generation to pay them. It's actually – it feels like a better way of – a better language, a better way of describing this. Oftentimes the term – I mean I, I've even used it in this conversation. We use the term privatization, which is a bit of a bugaboo word for, for, uh, for many folks. But if, if you just frame – if you just say what this is, is you're paying into a system that you control. It's still your money. It's an individual account. You just can't access it until you retire. Well, I don't know, it's – yes, yeah, sure, it's privatization. But you're just giving people what they've contributed. Right. It's, it's privatization in the sense that it's invested in private assets. Right. But it's still a, basically a government system. I mean it's it's a mandatory saving system. Uh, the options of what you can invest in would be limited and regulated. Uh, and we, and we want to do that because you, you have a moral hazard issue. If people you know, don't save, they can fall right. back on the welfare system and so on. So you, you want to have some requirement that they save for their retirement. So we're talking about like how would you sell this to someone who's a bit skeptical? They say, look, Social Security has its problems. It's raining on money. Yes, yes, yes. And I get why you should either raise taxes or lower benefits. That makes sense. That's commonsensical. Um, but this change, like individual accounts, seems a bit radical. So how do you sell someone like that on why individual accounts will actually benefit you know, retirees far more than our current system? Well, I mean there, there's lots of reasons you can explain why people should make that choice, particularly younger people. If you're nearing retirement, you probably want to stay in the current system. Uh, simply because, look, equity markets and so on are, are volatile. I yeah. mean, if, you're, if you've got five years to retirement, you don't want to take a chance on the market hitting a bad patch and going down. But if you're 25, yeah. uh, you're talking about the next 40 years. And we've never even had a 15-year period in U.S. history in which you would have lost money in the markets. Uh, and if you had a diversified portfolio with bonds and stocks and so on, they're, they're really remarkably safe and, and they probably should be in there. You can earn a much higher rate of return. You can have a – it becomes part of your estate, so it becomes inheritable, which is something that the current Social Security system is not. Uh, it is fairer to working women. It is fairer to minorities. There's a lot of reasons why you can do this. But ultimately, I, why not give people a choice? Uh, you know, if uh, – you are congenitally socialist or something and you uh, you just don't trust private markets. Uh, if you're a Bernie Sanders kid or something, I, I don't know. Uh, why not uh, – you know, you can stay in the current social security system and take your chances. Now, you probably have to pay more taxes or get fewer benefits, but do it. On the other hand, if you uh, are skeptical of social security being there when you retire like most young people are, uh, you should be given the choice uh, of taking your money and putting it into an individual account or at least part of your money. We probably – uh, wouldn't take the whole thing, but let's let's let you start and take some of it. You can do a grand trade-off. They can have their uh, public option for uh, Medicare buy-in if we get a uh, private, private option. There you go. For, That's only fair. For if, we're, if we're all for choice, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. It seems fair. Let's say we did this. We uh, and I don't know how this would look. Some kind of gradual, you know, uh, gradated. Uh, option to buy into um, individual accounts or something. I yeah, we put together a plan at Cato that uh, basically allowed you to take we, – we sort of bought into this fiction that there's an employer and employee half. And we said, take your half. Take the employer employee half and you can put that into personal account if you choose to. Or and you the, can put it into the, the old system. The employer half will stay in the current system and does a number of things in terms of disability and it also helps pay the transition to, to get there to the new system. But, but basically, we would simply let you take half your payroll tax and, uh, and invest it. 
So that way it's it's not all at once. We're not it, it kind of decreases the makes it easier for someone, I think, to imagine this being possible. We've rolled this system out. Everyone in a sense now is I, I suppose every working person in America is now a capitalist in a literal sense. They all own capital, they own stock. Uh, they're in index funds and bonds and, and mutual funds. What are some of the spillover effects from from this scheme? Well, uh, first of all, it vastly would increase the amount of savings in the economy, which provides a, a big economic boost. I mean, right now, right now, Social Security is essentially a drag uh, on the economy because of this debt that's sitting out there. We transform that over time into an actual capital surplus. Uh, uh, Marty Feldstein used to talk about uh, this trends of trillions of dollars in, in potential uh, economic growth, uh, permanent increase in GDP uh, as a result of this. Uh, it would lessen inequality because it would actually give low-income people uh, a chance to get in on investment the same way that wealthy people can, uh, right? You know, the the guy at the corner running the corner store would be able to put money in the market the same way Warren Buffett does. I mean, and over time, that would decrease uh, inequality. So it would have a number of spillovers uh, in that way. But it would also, as you mentioned, give workers more of a stake in the economy. In some ways, this is this, you know, the socialist dream come true because the workers would become owners of the means of production. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that basically uh, all every worker in America would have part ownership of the economy. And that has a lot of positive implications for how we, uh, we treat the economy uh, and how people feel connected with the economy. Right now, they feel the elites own everything they're left out. Uh, this would go a long way towards giving them a feeling of being part of it. It reminds me of uh, Cory Booker's baby bonds plan. Yeah, well, actually, yeah, there's something similar to that. I mean, the difference is basically the baby bonds are simply borrowed money. This is this is money we're already paying right now. Right, right. But the idea of uh, giving people uh, a stake in the economy is uh, something that's important. And as a means of decreasing inequality, is uh, right. racial inequality in his particular case is what he's Well, we should remember that the Social Security system really does penalize African Americans. How so? Uh, because how, what you get from Social Security benefits depends to a large degree on how long you live. Mm-hmm. If you live to be 100, you get a lot of Social Security checks. And if you die at 67, you're, you're kind of out of luck. Yeah. Uh, but African Americans at every age and every income level have shorter life expectancies than whites. A lot of reasons, the history of racism in the society and so on that, that are responsible for that. But it's true. And that means that an awful lot of African Americans get fewer Social Security benefits over the, over the long run. Um, about a third of African-American men pay Social Security taxes but die without ever collecting a cent in benefits. Wow. So, I mean, functionally, it acts as a wealth transfer from African-American workers to, or uh, uh, workers to white retirees. Yeah. Africa, actually, Social Security transfers money from the poor to the rich, from men to women and from blacks to whites. So basically, poor black men work to support rich white women. <laughs> it's, it's pretty re- regressive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, OK. So – um, let's see here. So if – let's say we make our transition, whether it's you know the kind of the Cato plan, we take the 6.2% that you see from your paycheck. Um, still, there is going to be – no matter what you do, there, there's going to be a transition cost yeah. because someone has to kind of pay twice. They have to pay for current retirees and they're paying for their own future in retirement as well. Um, how much money are we talking about there? How how do we how do we pay for that burden? We're talking about an awful lot of money. Uh, I don't have the most current estimates. It depends on the plan. Depends on how much you're taking out. But it's tens of trillions of dollars over thirty or forty years period. 
and you know the problem is once you've run up your credit cards, uh, unfortunately, there's no way out. I mean, for God's sake, stop charging. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I mean, every day we go on in the current system, we simply make it worse, but you can't get out from under it. Uh, we've basically, for young people, we, we've screwed them. I mean, we're, they're, they're going to, uh, to pay, pay twice. Now, calling a transition cost is a little bit misleading because it is less than they would pay uh, if we kept the current system going. Mm-hmm. In many ways, it's as if you owed me 100 bucks and you were supposed to pay me next month. And I said, look, if you give me 50 bucks today, we'll call it even. You wouldn't say, oh, my God, I just incurred a $50 transition cost. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, you're, you're 50 bucks better off. Yeah. Now, if you don't have 50 bucks today, you got a problem. And the federal government doesn't have $50 mm-hmm. to it right now. So it's, it's going to be painful, whatever we do. It's just going to be less painful if we move to the system of personal accounts than if we keep the current system going. And less painful the sooner we get to it. Sooner, Absolutely. The sooner we start char- stop charging the, the charge cards. Now, I, I've seen survey results that suggest that half of millennials and Gen Xers don't expect there to be any Social Security benefits when they retire period, which is a bit hyperbolic. Um, Though we do want people to be awake to the fact that Social Security is on an unsustainable trajectory. So how do we, as people who favor um, reform for the system, how how do we harness that kind of skeptical energy to fuel support for reform? Yeah, I I think what we need to do is talk to young people about what it's actually going to mean to them. And, you know, frankly, people discount far into the future. Uh, Well, Social Security might not be there. That's 50 years from now or 40 years from now. What do I care? Uh, There's so many more immediate uh, issues in in terms of of my life. And young people tend to not vote on it, even though they say, uh, you know, that they basically want this sort of thing. And I think it's we need to make them understand that, you know, they're worried about their student debt. Their Social Security debt is many times bigger uh, than what they face in Social Security debt. And they're ultimately going to have to pay it uh, one way or another in higher taxes or lower economic growth. Now, maybe you're listening to what uh, Michael Tanner and myself are, are saying here. And you think, wow, that sounds great. But how realistic is it? Has this ever really been tried before? You know what? There is a place where it is. There is a country where we can get a peek into the future, our possible future. That place is the land down under. So I called Simon Cowan, who is the research director at the Center for Independent Studies, a libertarian think tank in Australia. He's also the author of a recent paper on the subject titled Millennials and the Super, the Case for Voluntary Superannuation. Welcome to the show, Simon. Thanks for having me. Now, can you describe in, in really kind of simple lay terms for a mostly American audience, what does the retirement saving system in Australia look like for the kind of typical middle class worker? Yeah, sure thing. So uh, there's a couple of different pillars they're called here, uh, you know, sort of the elements of the system. There's a means tested publicly funded age pension that's available for people who are, um, you know, over the age of 66 and, and no longer able to work. Um, there are voluntary savings that people have accumulated over the, the course of their working life. Um, there's the family home, so where people tend to live is, is one of our pillars. And then the last one is our, our compulsory superannuation system where workers have 10% of their wages deducted and, and sent off to a superannuation fund to manage for them in their retirement. And, and those sort of elements all work more or less together. Uh, you know, obviously with a system that size, it's, it's difficult to get them to work, but basically 
we sort of end up relying on on that combination of assets. Now, the the first two that you mentioned uh, seem very similar to the th- they kind of have American analogs. Like the defined benefit system is somewhat reminiscent of of Social Security here in the U.S. Although Social Security is not means tested, right? Like everyone contributes and everyone pretty much gets something out of Social Security. Whereas it sounds like in Australia it is means tested. It's only for those who make. A small amount uh, in in retirement. The other one reminds me of like four hundred one k's, like uh, tax advantaged savings, but it's that that superannuation um, setup that that I don't think we really have a good corollary for that in the United States. Maybe you can drill down in on on that a little bit more. What what is, what what is superannuation? What does it mean? What does even that term mean? How, how is it different from those other systems? Yeah, absolutely. So, so superannuation actually came out of our industrial relations system. Um, Australia had a pretty significant problem with with um, wages and prices spiralling out of control in the seventies and the early eighties. Uh, and in those days, our our left wing Labor government basically negotiated a settlement with the unions that said, in exchange for delaying or reducing your claims for further wage rises. A lot of wages were set centrally by our industrial relations system at that time. In exchange for reducing some of those wages and allowing us to get inflation in particular under control, we will compel work bosses to direct some of that increase into a long-term savings account. So a superannuation account is a savings account held with either a retail fund, so like think of a bank or a financial institution, or it's managed by an industry body, so which is typically made up of worker representatives and um, employer representatives, or they're managed by individuals, and there's 600,000 self-managed super funds in Australia. And these accounts that you pay into over the course of your working life, there's a compulsory deduction from wages that comes out of your salary before you receive it um, that goes to those funds. You can also make voluntary contributions on top of that. That money is, is kept in these funds. It's invested in these funds until you reach retirement age, at which point you can access that money and, and use it to sort of fund your retirement in addition to, to the age pension. And and obviously, like 401ks and, and other options elsewhere, there, is, there are tax advantages involved in contributing money to superannuation. Hmm. And that, and the each person has some degree of control over which funds that, that that money goes into, like like index index funds, mutual funds, that kind of thing? Or how much consumer control is there over that money? So that's a good question. And it depends to a certain extent on, on what industry you're in, what sort of job you've got. So the basic idea is that everyone should be able to choose what super fund they have. And you can decide to put it in an industry fund or into a retail fund. You can, you know, within certain restrictions, you can manage that money yourself. You can't draw money out of that, but you can have some degree of control over where it goes. Um, The industry funds, the sort of union dominated super funds, really, um, they do have a slightly higher degree of control in some industries 
because the industrial relations system will mandate a particular industry fund for a particular person working in that industry. And, and those workers tend to have slightly less choice than others. Mm. Um, it, it is interesting, too, that that labor union role in the history of superannuation. I mean, I, I have a hard time imagining um, in the United States context, labor unions backing this kind of partial privatization of the retirement system. In fact, they've uh, previous efforts to do so have been um, kind of uh, strenuously blocked or argued against by American labor unions. So, um, what was the reasoning for labor unions? Why were they in support of this as an alternative of superannuation as an alternative to the old age pension program? It's a, it's a really good question, and I think partly it's a function of, of that particular time. The Australian economy had been performing relatively poorly. The government was engineering uh, a fall in real wages over that period of time as a way of combating what was you know, fairly dire economic circumstances. Um, so we had a situation where you know, some more radical reforms were on the table simply because we were genuinely concerned about the direction of the country. Um, one thing that we have seen with unions, whether or not they had the foresight to, to sort of see this in advance, the, the private sector coverage of, of unions in Australia has declined enormously to the point now where, you know, it's something like only 10% of private sector workers are a member of a union. Um, we still have quite strong union coverage in the public sector, but outside the public sector, unions have, have all but disappeared um, in Australia. And so one way that they can ensure um, their financial viability and, and one way that they can sort of make money without having a lot of members or a lot of fees is that they actually can get management fees from the superannuation system. And, and given that the size of, of our super system, you know, it, it's $3 trillion, which is well and truly more than than sort of 150% of Australia's GDP. The, wow. the size of that system generates a, a reasonable income for the participants in it. So uh, unions, whatever their original thoughts are on super, they've certainly become quite dependent on the system for their financial stability. I mean, I'm struck by that that number. I mean, I... Um... You know, hundred wait, like one hundred and thirty plus percent of Australia's annual GDP in these in the superannuation system. Whereas, like in the U.S., our Social Security trust fund is just under about fourteen percent of U.S. annual GDP. So, I mean, it's like proportionately ten times less. Um, how did you get from there to here? Like, I mean, so these laws are passed in the in the early nineties. Um, my understanding was that the contribution rate kind of has been gradually going up. Um, and has there been kind of pushback against the rising amount of money in the superannuation scheme and the um, kind of rising contribution rate? Yeah, so you're right. The, the original super system was set up as, as 3% of wages. It rose to 9% over the course of the next sort of 15 years. Um, there wasn't a huge amount of pushback in relation to that increase because that period of time happened to be a, an exceptionally high period of, of economic growth in Australia. We, we saw 
you know, quite a significant economic boom in the early 2000s and then even again sort of, you know, towards the just after the global financial crisis, there, there was quite strong income growth in that time. So people perhaps didn't notice the increase in super as much. Um, and obviously, you know, the system is now 25 years old, so we're now starting to get a degree of maturity in the system. You can imagine that, that you know, this system having built up over 25 years, we're now starting to see people who are coming into retirement with enough money in their super system balance to be able to, to influence their retirement. And part of that, I think a significant part of that really comes from the fact that superannuation is, is compulsory. And so for, for younger workers in particular, workers in their 20s and 30s for whom superannuation is something they're going to receive in, in 30 or 40 years, they're not as focused on the competitive aspects of super. They're not right, as focused right. on the returns. They're not as focused on costs. They're not as open to moving to get a better deal from their super. And so there's a great deal of inertia in the system that allows people to, to charge fees that are higher than reasonable or higher than necessary. Mm, that makes sense. Uh one of the uh, analyses I saw actually came from Vanguard, which is you know investment firm that operates kind of across the globe. Um, but they they estimated that average retiree earnings in Australia, and this is you know half an estimate, but they estimate that it will uh, nearly double from 1992 to 2029 to about fifty thousand dollars a year in income um, from superannuation funds. Um, does that line up with your own estimates? Like what does – how has retirement changed in terms of how much revenue, you know, your typical retiree is going to be bringing in 10 years from now versus, you know, when this plan was first put in place? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think we're already starting to see an increase in people who are um, self-sufficient in retirement. Um, that increase, while it's not as large as, as we've hoped for, is it, those numbers of people are growing especially early in retirement we're finding more people who are um, who are not eligible for the age pension until they, they start to get older um, and we're seeing that of of that sort of generation of people who are coming into retirement in the next 10 or 15 years the balance in their superannuation accounts is expected to be somewhere in the vicinity of sort of three to five hundred thousand dollars which is a sum of money that can go a reasonably long way in retirement especially when it's supplemented with, with an income from the age pension. So I think there's no question that amongst retirees who own their own home and have some money in their superannuation account, their living standards in retirement have been a lot higher in the last 20 years than, than they probably were before that. And the retirees who are, who are really struggling with poverty, the ones who who probably you know should be the, the focus of government attention in, in the retirement space, Tend to be those who have who have little or no savings in super and don't own their own home. And as long as our system keeps pushing people towards uh, something of a savings nest egg alongside that that principal residence, then it's you know there are estimates that suggest something like ninety to ninety five percent of retirees will have a comfortable income in retirement. Hmm. Now, <clears throat> we've talked about this uh, you know, a little bit already, but my understanding is as you know, as the 
as more and more workers spend more of their career contributing into the scheme and um, a higher percentage of their wages uh, are going into the scheme, like we, all of that should get better over the next 10, 20 years. The, the numbers will keep climbing. I mean, simply put, 25 years of paying in means our re, people retiring right now have only been contributing since, say, their 40s, since they're maybe 40, late 30s. Um, that's a lot of you know, another 20 years of annualized returns makes a big difference. So what is the ben- – like how do we measure success or failure for the superannuation system? Like how do we know um, – I mean because it sounds – a few times we've referenced here that returns have been below what was expected. You know, 4 to 5% is kind of below the – certainly below the S&P average here in the US of about 7% over a 30-year time, most 30-year time horizons, uh, real, real returns, obviously, uh, adjusting for inflation. So like that seems low. It's, of course, much higher than the, let's just say the return on social social security in the US, where the return is, you know, approaches zero uh, for most people. So like, like, what's the bench? What's the appropriate benchmark? How do we know if superannuation is a success or a failure? That's a really good question, and and it depends very much on the perspective that you you look at it from as to to what you think. So, I mean, in terms of is the Australian super system a success? Well, on the plus side, our means tested age pension is a relatively low percentage of um, our level of government spending compared to a lot of other countries. Um, we have a relatively low system and, and one that's not overly penal. It's not low because the rate of the pension is, is very low, but because, you know, we, we have all these other elements to the system. Um, we don't have a situation where there is a massive unfunded liability either. One of the big advantages of Australian super compared to a lot of other systems is it's a defined contribution system. It's not a defined benefit system. Where you see the real problem, I think, and even you know to an extent we saw this in Australia, was was unfunded defined benefit systems that were draining the public purse. So we don't have those particular problems. Um, I think one of the challenges for the system in particular, though, is there's been a lack of clarity around the goals of the system. Um, until very recently, we hadn't even sort of legislated a purpose to the superannuation system. So there was a lot of different thoughts as to what the system was supposed to do. Was it supposed to generate self-sufficiency in retirement? Was it supposed to reduce the pension burden? Was it basically supposed to be additional spending money on top of the government-funded age pension? And which whichever sort of characterization you put on the system, it depends whether or not you think it's been a success. Until very recently, we haven't had a lot of evidence that even when the system was mature, it would reduce pension spending very much, that that largely what it would do was move people from full reliance on our age pension to a partial reliance on the age pension. Um, With some tightening of our pension means test recently, the evidence is suggesting the longer term burden on the age pension will be lower which is very much a good thing. But but superannuation is really uh, a system that is universally applied but is of far greater benefit to people who are on average incomes or above average incomes compared to those who are on below average incomes. 
Now, if you had the if you had a piece of advice for um, American policymakers, I mean, it's not really in the conversation right now. It, it was twenty years ago, um, back during the Clinton and then Bush administrations' proposals to privatize Social Security. Um, it wouldn't have looked exactly like the Australian system because, again, we don't have that old age pension uh, corollary and. Um, but what advice? I, I, eventually, it's going it, to this crisis is going to hit the United States. Eventually, Social Security will have to cut back on its benefits. There'll be a lot of public pressure to to enact some kind of reform. Um, and so, for future policymakers, as they think about retirement issues, uh, what advice would you give to them um, from the Australian case? If if you got to redesign superannuation uh, at the outset. What changes would you make to it to uh, kind of avoid some of these pitfalls? Yeah, absolutely. So possibly two slightly different questions there. But but let's start with what advice would you give to people? And the, the primary advice is don't make things worse. So identify the things that are making this, that are putting pressure on the system. Because, we, you know, as, as I understand from the US system, there, there is increasing pressure coming onto this system that, that it's already underfunded, but the problem is actually getting worse. And, and in a number of, of cities in particular, you know, there's, there's a significant problem of funding the pension system that you already have. So one of the elements of that, obviously, is to shift more from a defined benefit model to a defined contribution model. So rather than, than sort of saying, you know, you're going to get this particular level of, of social security payment or this level of pension from the city, that whatever you contribute, the returns on that money will will be the amount that you receive in terms of your benefit. That, that at least stops the system from getting any worse. Uh, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem, but it does stop it from getting worse. Um, I think in terms of, of how we could make the Australian system better, one thing that would have been better is if we'd started with the most efficient tax model in our super system. So the most efficient tax model is for contributions to be exempt from taxation, earnings to be exempt from taxation, but any earnings in retirement to be fully taxed so that retirees have an interest in the income tax system, they have to pay into the system and that they're not simply in the position of infinitely drawing out of government spending without contributing to government spending. And, and that's a problem that we have now with, with sort of 12% of our population in retirement. There's a huge percentage of retirees who no longer pay any tax directly, so they no longer have any interest in the efficiency of our tax system. I think that would be one thing that would, would work quite well. And then the other thing would be to focus on what is it that we want superannuation to achieve. And I think for workers who are likely to receive a full age pension or almost a full age pension in their retirement, they'd be better off having access to that superannuation uh, to support them through medical bills, to allow them to buy a home, to support their family. Basically, they'd be better off with that income because that income won't really add too much to their retirement and it is diminishing their, their living standards while they're working. Uh, those are the sort of reforms, and a lot of that is more tinkering at the edges than fundamentally changing the system. Um, I personally, being a libertarian, would prefer the system to be voluntary. I think there's a lot of benefit in, in terms of increasing competition when the only people who are in the system are those who want to be there. 
but given how entrenched our system is in in terms of industrial relations, in terms of tax, in terms of you know this sort of that entrenchment of the system, it, it seems very difficult to to go from here to a voluntary system. And and I suspect that the reverse is also true in America. Moving from a voluntary private contribution system to a compulsory one is very difficult. The conversation's been fairly abstract so far. You know, we're dealing with these huge sums of money, obscure federal government policy. But what might these reforms mean for ordinary folks who depend on social security and retirement? Let's consider the case of a hypothetical person who, just because we need the name, we'll call him Regis Philbin. Let's compare Regis's expected outcomes in retirement under two very different scenarios. First, what he'd receive under our current social security system, then how he might do with a privatized individual account system. Let's say that in both worlds, Regis worked his entire 50-year career, all the way from age 18 to retirement at age 68, in a minimum wage job, making just $7.25 an hour for 40 hours a week. And that's a little bit under $14,000 a year. Now, to be conservative, we'll stipulate that his earnings, they adjust with inflation, but they never functionally go up. He's making very little money, much less than most Americans make. This is not generally how it works in the job market, but we're going to be conservative here. Under our current system, Regis would be putting the equivalent of 12.4% of his earnings into Social Security, which comes out to $1,726 a year. Now, when he retires, he's going to receive a benefit of about $9,552 a year. I use the Social Security agency's own online calculator for this. And that's not nothing. I mean, it represents a real annualized return on his contributions, so long as he doesn't die early, maybe 2%. But $9,500 isn't a lot to live on when you've gotten used to living on $14,000 a year. And when the Social Security Trust Fund runs out of money in the mid-2030s, Regis's benefit will be cut to somewhere around $7,500. He could have a negative real return on his contributions. Still, it's better than nothing, it's fairly stable, and we're familiar with it. But consider how much better Regis's retirement would be if he had been able to invest that 12.4% instead. And again, we'll make all the conservative assumptions. We'll assume a 6% return across a 30-year investment horizon. Conservative, pessimistic. And it's Regis's bad luck to be working during a bad economic cycle. But even so, when he retires at 68, he'll have retirement savings worth just over half a million dollars and three quarters of a million if the market had performed closer to its historical average. Our minimum wage working Regis is halfway to being a millionaire. And then based off a 4% withdrawal rule of thumb, which should preserve his account for the rest of his life, Regis would have a retirement income of $20,000 a year, more than double what he would have received from that antiquated social security system of yesteryear. Double. But imagine how much better his life would be as a result. He's less likely to have to choose between paying the heating bill and buying groceries. Furthermore, if Regis dies early, and in most cases, even if he lives beyond average age, he'll leave a large inheritance for his family, perhaps hundreds of thousands of dollars. It is his money after all, not just a vague government promise that has no real legal obligation to honor. Think of the effects this would have on intergenerational cycles of poverty, functionally acting as a kind of trust fund for every family in America. 
Now, in this example, I've used the most conservative lower estimates, but if you bump Regis's average lifetime annual earnings to just $28,000 a year, which is still less than most American workers average, then Regis Philbin would retire a millionaire and effectively join the middle class in retirement. Even dual income households working minimum wage jobs would combine to have a million dollars at retirement, meaning that the overwhelming majority of Americans could be millionaires. Who wants to be a millionaire like Regis Philbin? I do. Don't you? Let's reform Social Security to make it happen. Until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.